the Dragonlance Nexus is proud to present the Dragonlance Canticle. Greetings, friends and fellow companions, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Dragonlance Canticle. Flying solo for a change, my name is Megan. Thank you all for joining me for this special episode. This episode is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do here. I am going to do my best to discuss the difficulties that I've observed in running Dragonlance in 5e, as well as some advice for you listeners for how you might overcome these same challenges in your games. Before we get into that, though, I want to do a few quick shout outs uh, and some news to remind you about some of the new products we've got. Of course, uh, I want to talk about the Journals of Kaz the Minotaur, The Lost Colony, featuring the work of beloved perennial Dragonlance fan favorite Richard Knack. It is a new Dragonlance adventure featuring uh, Kaz the Minotaur and also a new story featuring Kaz the Minotaur by Richard Knack himself. That's available on DMs Guild right now. Also available is Autumn Twilight by our good friend Tim Shiflett. It is a 5th edition Dragonlance conversion for the original Autumn Twilight or Dragons of Autumn Twilight sequence of stories or adventures, I should say. And lastly, if I can toot my own horn, I would like to give a little shout out for a short Ravenloft adventure that I recently published myself on DMs Guild called Lamordia the God Engine. So you can all uh, check out any of these, all of these, whatever seems interesting to you, available on DMs Guild right now. I also want to mention that on Saturday, the 23rd, at GaryCon, we are going to be having a Dragonlance Nexus panel at 2 p.m. It's called Dragonlance Nexus, Past, Present, and Future. It's going to feature Brian Holt, Chuck Martinell, Ed McKeel, John Ryan, Trampus Whiteman, and Weldon Chen. So if any of you listening are going to be at GaryCon, make sure to block off some time for yourself on Saturday at 2 p.m. to go hang out with the Dragonlance Nexus crew. So like I said, the topic for this episode is going to be best way. No, I don't like the sound of that. Not the best way to run Dragonlance in 5e, but just some ideas for running Dragonlance in 5e and some hurdles that you might come up against. This has been something I've dealt with frequently. As a pro GM, I am not necessarily trying to convince my own players of to play Dragonlance, to try to convince anybody to play Dragonlance, nor am I just telling my players, hey, this is what we're going to do next. Uh, like it or leave it. As a pro GM, I'm trying to recruit players. I'm trying to get people from outside that I don't know, who don't know me, interested in playing Dragonlance adventures. And there's some obstacles that I've run in a couple of times. A lot of this advice, I just want to point out a disclaimer, sort of, I guess, that these opinions are my own, don't necessarily reflect the opinion of anybody else at the Nexus or the Nexus as a whole. I think I'm safe to say the Nexus believes that you should play Dragonlance in the way that is the most fun to you and to your players and that there's no wrong way to do it. But I'm just going to give you some tips for how to overcome any stumbling blocks that I've encountered, maybe you've encountered. The first bit of advice that I'm going to give is a super obvious one, which is to go to the DMs Guild and purchase a copy of Tasselhoff's Pouches of Everything Revised, if you haven't already, because it is full of advice for running Dragonlance in 5e. If you're a classic Dragonlance fan and you want to run in 5e 
and you get this book, it's going to really do a lot of the heavy lifting for you and help to bridge those gaps between older editions and 5e. So that's the first thing I recommend. Tasselhoff's Pouches of Everything Revised on the DM's Guild. So let's talk a little bit about what sets Dragonlance apart from other settings. This is sort of a, a general thought from, from the earliest days what set Dragonlance apart. One is a strong narrative. This is occasionally called the Hickman Revolution, the idea that a Dungeons and Dragons campaign could be a story, a narrative, an epic, rather than just a series of dungeon crawls or a series of adventures. Dragonlance, the original adventures, Dragonlance, uh, Dragons of Despair, and the other early modules expected you to be using the pre-generated characters. You don't have to, but it's expecting you to use the pre-generated characters. Um, and finally, Dragonlance is a very sort of... I'm not exactly the word. I, I, I came up with a few synonyms, although I don't know exactly which one is right, but a classic or grounded or a limited fantasy setting. It feels more, clo- it feels closer to Middle Earth than it does to what we think of like the Forgotten Realms these days. There's a logic to where, there's a logic to the geography, there's a logic to the history, there's a logic to the people and the civilizations, and they all fit together to form a unified whole, as opposed to what I would say Forgotten Realms, which is kind of like a grab bag or a melting pot of all these different ideas that exist in this one setting where really anything can happen. So that's sort of where we're starting with from Dragonlance. That's, and a few of these ideas are going to inform some of the issues that come up later, because these, none of these are problems in and of themselves. But when you try to convert Dragonlance to 5th edition, you're going to find places where the narrative contradicts what 5e is trying to do, or where the idea, the story without the pre-generated characters is going to be more difficult to maintain, or this limited fantasy setting is going to be harder for players to sink their teeth into if they really have their heart set on a certain type of character. So what are a few other challenges of running Dragonlance in 5e? Um, it's going to depend on the era you're playing in. I'll get to that in a little bit later. But... You will, if you're playing in the, the War of the Lance, for example, let's, let's take the War of the Lance as our baseline. We start with no divine healers. Uh, nobody has access to any healing magic in five, uh, sorry, in Dragonlance. But people come to a game wanting to play a cleric or wanting to play a paladin. What are you going to do? Just shut them down and say, no, you can't play a cleric or a paladin? Maybe. That's one way to do it. But there's so many classes in 5e that have healing spells. Not only clerics and paladins, but rangers, uh, druids, bards, even some of the uh, arcane subclasses have healing spells. And there's a lot of subclasses and classes that have healing features, even if they're not spells, like the um, the fighter's second wind or the way of mercy monk has a certain healing ability. There's just there's a lot, you know, you could go on and on. And I think another problem is that 5e players are afraid to play without healing in their party. That's something that I've come up with, or I've come up against in my own games. 5e players are used to playing in games like, you know, World of Warcraft, or like these raid-style MMORPGs where you have to have the certain role in your group, and one of those roles is the healer. And if they're going into an adventure without a healer, that is very stressful, maybe, for a 5e player. It makes them feel very vulnerable. Another issue where Dragonlance is going to seem different to uh, to new 5e players, is the lack of dragons, especially in the War of the Lance era. 
people who want to play draconic subclasses are going to find themselves out of luck. The draconic bloodline sorcerer, the way of the ascendant dragon monk, the drake warden ranger. How do you make those work in a setting where the dragons have been gone for thousands of years? And a separate but sort of related problem is that I find it's very hard to impress players with the presence of a dragon. I think that in the old days, the idea of fighting a dragon was this goal that was when you were when you were high level, when you were at the, the end of a long dungeon, that's when you fought the dragon. Dragonlance kind of flipped that on its head by having dragons very present in the setting. Dragons aren't just off in their lairs somewhere. They are interacting with the world. Ordinary people can interact with dragons in this world. Modern 5e, Forgotten Realms, for example, has kind of co-opted this idea. It's sort of taken what Dragonlance did and made it their own. Or not made it their own, but they've taken what Dragonlance did and, and made it routine. So for people to encounter dragons... In their role-playing game, I don't think it has the same impact that it did in the early days of Dragonlance. So I think that's an issue. And of course, there are the different ancestries that exist in 5e, but don't necessarily exist in Dragonlance that people might still want to play as. A few that popped up to the top of my head were Dragonborn, Tieflings, Warforged, um, Orcs or Half-Orcs, and Halflings. These ancestries don't really exist in classic Dragonlance, and it can be it can be hard to incorporate them specifically into this setting. Then there's the more problematic ancestries, which I would call the three that come to mind for me are Kender, Gully Dwarves, and Gnomes, which also happens to be the title of one of the anthologies. So Kender, Gully Dwarves, and Gnomes. Um, the three problematic ancestries of Dragonlance. We'll go a little bit more into this later. And lastly, a big topic is the Wizards of High Sorcery. How do we make the arcane casters, the full casters that didn't exist when, or at least didn't exist in their modern form when Dragonlance was created, how do we make them fit into this organization? Sorcerers, warlocks, and bards all get access to ninth level spells eventually. How do you make them fit into the Wizards of High Sorcery? And what about characters that don't draw their powers from the moon? Like, uh, for example, a storm sorcerer, or a pact of the undying warlock, or bard. They don't necessarily draw their powers from the moon. And I want to talk about the test in general. Is the test really necessary? Because it is hard to do the test right, especially in a campaign. Is Should it be lethal like it was in the old days? When is the character supposed to take it? How do you make it fun? How do you do it without breaking up the story of the campaign that you're running? These are all questions that I would like to address. A lot of the challenges that you're going to have running a Dragonlance adventure are going to vary based on the era in which you set your campaign. So I've kind of done a little ranking of what I think is the is easy, moderate, and difficult. A di- easy, moderate, and difficult era in which to run your game. My way of determining the, the ranking is by considering in which era is it easiest to incorporate all existing 5e class options, and which era has the most whether the era has available resources or not, published official resources. So I think the easiest era is the post-War of the Lance, pre-Chaos War area. The gods are back. The dragons are back. The world is rebuilding. The world is opening up. I think that this is a really easy 
time to have different ancestries appearing in Ancelon, to have clerics that have access to all their powers, to have um, the, mag- the mages of high sorcery, the wizards of high sorcery, strong and united. And there's just a lot of material available for this for this time period. If you look at the Tales of the Lance box set from second edition, I mean, that's all about this era. You can also take a lot of the War of the Lance resources and apply them to the same era as well. So easy post-War of the Lance pre-Chaos War. The more moderate eras, moderate difficulty, I would call the War of the Lance era. Obviously, there's a ton of material for the War of the Lance, but as I've said, the War of the Lance features many of these problems, the lack of clerics, the lack of healing magic, and the lack of dragons. I would also classify the pre-cataclysm era under this same moderate difficulty. In that case, depending on when you run it, if you're running it during the reign of Istar, the gods are there, so that's easy. If you're running it before the third dragon where you've got the gods and the dragons. So that's a time period that's pretty easy to incorporate a lot of these classes, I think. But the difficulty is that there's not a ton of published material about what the world was like before the Cataclysm or before the Third Dragon War. So you're going to be kind of making it up a lot on your own. You've got, you can go to novels for inspiration, of course, but I think it's going to be, it's going to be a little bit sparse finding published sources. Also, the post-War of Souls era. This is another one where you've got the dragons back. Good. You've got the gods back. Good. You've got a pretty good amount of resources available, but there's so many changes that happen to the world during the War of Souls that if you're not really familiar with the Age of Mortals slash War of Souls era, I think that it can be tricky because a lot of the resources that you're going to find out there are for this War of the Lance and after the war era. You're going to need to really incorporate different elements that don't exist in classic, in the, the earliest of the classic Dragonlance, like you know, the Knights of Dekesis or the Knights of Naraka, the dragon overlords and sort of the changes that they had on the world, um, the presence of mystics and the presence of wild magic. I just think that there's a lot that goes into a post-War of Souls game. It's possible. It's probably going to be a lot of fun. I know that John, I think, is running a post-War of Souls game, but I do think that there are challenges there. The hardest setting, the most difficult setting or era that I think you might tackle in Dragonlance is the Age of Mortals and the Age of Despair. Because in these two settings, you have, well, in the Age of Despair, you've got no gods, no dragons. So you have to figure out how am I going to make all these class class options work? And again, there's not a ton of resources unless you take the War of the Lance resources and just strip the war elements out. The Age of Mortals, you've got no gods, you don't have the traditional magic. You don't have, you have the dragon purge happening, so there's not so many dragons anymore. But instead, there's the dragon overlords. Um, and how do you make them fit into your campaign? I think it's tricky. And I think that the resources that exist for the Age of Mortals aren't as solid as those that exist for the War of the Lance era, or even for the post-War of Souls era. So five different eras, post-War of the Lance, War of the Lance, Pre-Cataclysm, Post-War of Souls, Age of Mortals, Age of Despair. Each one of them are going to have their... Did I say five? That was six, wasn't it? Six eras. That's going to be the areas that we're going to focus on. We're going to talk about some of the different challenges. And I'm going to talk about which areas are easier, which eras are easier, 
and how you might take ideas from different eras and incorporate them into other eras to help ease the process. So let's talk about divine healing. At the beginning of the War of the Lance, the gods have been gone for centuries and there is no healing magic. Healing magic went when the gods went. That made sense back in the AD&D days, but it doesn't make so much sense today in the 5e days because even if the gods went away, so what? You got paladins, you got druids, rangers, bards. You can have tons of healing magic without a cleric. So how do you make that impactful? Do you just, do you just tell your players, well, you can't have any healing spells. If your class would give you a healing spell or a healing feature, uh, no, it doesn't work because there's no healing magic. That's one way to do it. That's certainly a fine way to do it. But if you don't want to take that sort of agency away from your players, there's a couple things you can do. One of them is that you can reflavor healing spells and abilities. Take what is magical and make it mundane. Um, you could, for example, you could take a cleric and sort of reflavor them as like a doctor, for example. So the healing that they do isn't recognized by the people watching it as divine magic. I think this is particularly easy to do if a character or player decides to play a druid, a paladin, or a bard, because you can give the healing magic a different source. So if you're a druid, you're calling upon the power of nature to heal. If you're a paladin, you're calling on the strength of your convictions to heal. If you're a bard, you're calling on the power of music to heal. You don't necessarily need the gods involved. Same thing if you're playing as a celestial patron warlock, you could have a celestial creature as your patron. One of the ones that we recommend in Tasselhoff's Patches of Everything is the Forest Master. She's a unicorn, which is a celestial, so you could have her as a patron. Um, and also the Divine Soul Sorcerer. So maybe there's no gods now, but maybe there were, and maybe your character is the descendant of a demigod or the descendant of a half-angel or something like that. So the healing magic, while it might not exist outside in the world at large, it's still in your bloodline. There's also the idea of incorporating mystics. So during the Age of Mortals, when there weren't healers, Goldmoon discovers the power of the heart and the idea of a mystic is created. When you use, you draw sort of upon your, your own inner reserves to heal people. And we have some guidelines for playing mystics in Tasselhoff's, Tasselhoff's Pouches of Everything Revised. So you could just reflavor your clerics or your healers as mystics. They don't draw their powers from the gods, it comes from within. You could even, if you were playing in, say, the Age of Despair or the War of the Lance era, create mystics as seekers or seekers as mystics. So maybe the seekers don't have access to the magic of the gods, but they do have their sort of own personal magic. Uh, their own personal healing power that they can draw upon. Even if you want to have clerics, you can have them drawing from a concept rather than a divinity. So, for example, you know, you could say that Paladine is uh, a light domain deity. So maybe you're not drawing your power directly from Paladine, but you're drawing it from the light, the light of the sun, the light of the world, the light of a, uh, a magical artifact, for example. Or if you're a uh, a death domain cleric rather than drawing your power from Chemosh, you're drawing it from drawing it from the power of the grave or something like that. It doesn't have to be a god that you're getting your power directly from. It can be more of an abstract concept. Another idea, if you don't want to 
reflavor if you want to keep things more straightforward. Just say the gods didn't completely abandon Kryn following the cataclysm, but the gods are despised for dropping the fiery mountain. So clerics are especially rare, and any clerics that you find are going to be disorganized. There's no organized church of the gods. Um, the clerics would be more like lone prophets, like your character had a vision from Mishikau, for example, and that's why they became a cleric. But there's not really other clerics in the world for them to interact with. Or if there are, they're so remote and so separate that they might never meet. Another idea is to say that while the the gods themselves aren't providing the divine magic, that uh, an aptitude for healing magic still exists. So this would explain why you can become a cleric, a paladin, or a druid without getting your powers from the gods, just because you have a natural aptitude for drawing upon the healing energies that exist in the world. But you'd want it to be exceptionally rare and exceptionally unreliable to explain why the Age of Despair is the way it is, why there's so much disease, for example, plague running rampant. Because healing magic might exist, but it's really rare. There's even a an idea that you could pull from War of the Twins when Chrysania is, when are they, like 100, 100 years after the Cataclysm or so, and people witness Chrysania's healing and they think it's witchcraft. So you could even do something like that. You might have a character who's a cleric claiming to be a cleric of some ancient god and the people are treating them like a witch. My last idea of how you can make divine healing easier in your 5e campaign, your War of the Lance type campaign, is to say that the more fringe peoples of Ancelon never lost their faith in the gods. I mean, if you think about it, the gods dropped the fiery mountain on Istar, a human empire. Why would this really interfere with the faith of, say, the wood elves or the sea elves? Or the nomadic peoples, like the plains folk or the ice folk, why would they, why would they care that a fiery mountain was dropped on Istar? We even see a little bit, there's a little bit of precedence for this with Riverwinds because his grandfather and his family never lost their faith in the ancient gods. So why can't we just take that concept and expand it a little bit to say the wood elves never lost faith, faith in Chislev and the sea elves never lost faith in, um, Habakkuk or, you know, the Kender never lost faith in Brancala or something like that. Just maybe the humans, maybe the center of the continent has lost its, its faith in the gods, but not everybody did. So if you have a character who, or if you have a player who really wants to play a cleric, say, Hey, why don't you play a wood elf, sea elf? Or why don't you play a plains folk person? And then we don't really have to jump through these hoops. We can just, if they're happy playing that ancestry, then cool. That's easy. Let's talk about dragons next. As I was mentioning before, dragons are so ubiquitous in 5e that it's impossible to surprise the players with their return. If you're playing War of the Lands, and this happened to me when I was running Shadow of the Dragon Queen, you can tell the players there haven't been dragons in this land for 2,000 years, but when the dragon finally shows up, it's not going to hit them. They're not going to be like, oh, wow, a dragon. You know, their character might react that way, but you're never really going to get the player that excited about a dragon suddenly showing up, unless they're like a brand new player. That that player might still get excited about a dragon, but an experienced 5e player is not going to be impressed by that. Also, the presence of the draconic subclasses as available options for players in 5e is going to muddy the absence of the dragons. 
Um, if there haven't been dragons for thousands of years and your player wants to play a draconic bloodline sorcerer or send in dragon monk or drake warden ranger, how do you make that fit? How do you make your character have this connection to dragons if dragons have been gone for so long? So one idea that I have is make the dragons not extinct per se, but just exceptionally rare. You could have, for example, a monast- uh, uh, an island monastery somewhere where the headmaster is a dragon and teaches. Maybe the, the students don't even know that the headmaster is a dragon, but he or she teaches the ways of the dragons to the, the students. And that's how you get ascendant dragon monks. Or maybe the dragons live in very remote places. So maybe there's dragons in the deep forest or there's dragons at the tops of mountains, or in the tundra. Remote places where they're very unlikely to ever be encountered. But those remote places are the places that rangers like to go. So a deep, uh, a ranger who explores a deep forest maybe encounters a green dragon, or a ranger who explores the Arctic maybe meets a silver dragon. That could explain why some people might have, rangers might have this connection to dragons in your world. Draconic sorcerers, I think, is probably the easiest because you could just say, well, my great, 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 etc. grandfather was a dragon. And there's been this recessive gene in my family for all these generations, and it just happened to show itself in me. Maybe that could even be like, you know, now that the dragon, sort of like in Game of Thrones, when once the dragons are born again, magic starts to reappear in the world. Maybe once the dragons begin to take an active role in the world, it wakes up something in your character's bloodline. So that's just sort of a general idea. Make the dragons not completely gone, but those who remain on Kryn, for whatever reason, they didn't get banished along with the third dragon war. Maybe maybe the third dragon war, just so many dragons died during the war that there's just not that many left and that they almost seem extinct, but really they're just highly endangered um, until the Queen of Darkness starts gearing up for the war. So I think that that could work pretty well. Um, another issue is that you're going to have is Dragonborn. How do you work Dragonborn into a Dragonlance setting? Let's say you have a player that comes to your table, they really want to play a Dragonborn character. Well, the idea that dragons are extinct or maybe they never existed in the first place is going to be a little bit hard to reconcile when you have a dragon person walking around. Also, if you've got a dragonborn person walking around, how do you explain the draconians? How do you make the draconians have any sort of an impact? If you have a, if you don't have any players that want to play dragonborn, you can just ignore the existence of dragonborn. But if you do have a player that wants to play a dragonborn, maybe you could say that they are you know, like like the dragons themselves, exceptionally rare. Maybe the awakening of the dragons triggered, you know, maybe the a dragonborn, their parents were human, but the uh, the awakening of the dragons awoke something in the child's blood that caused them to grow into a dragonborn. You could also say that draconians, rather than being the cor- being created from the corrupted eggs of good dragons, are good dragons that were sorry, good dragonborn that were taken by Tachesis, sorry, metallic dragonborn that were taken by Tachesis and transformed into draconians. There's um, a little bit of precedent for this in fantasy. The orcs in Lord of the Rings were originally elves that were taken by Sauron and transformed or taken by Morgoth, I'm not sure, and transformed into orcs. So draconians could be twisted dragonborn. You can even allow your players to play as draconians. 
we have this is an option that we have in Tasselhoff's Pouches of Everything Revised. We have some instructions, guidelines for playing as a draconian. So if your character really wants to play a dragonborn, say, you know, there's not really dragonborns in this world, but there are draconians. If you want to play a draconian, we can treat it sort of like a just a reflavored kind of dragonborn. I think most people would be cool about that, especially since draconians have wings and tails. They're a little bit, I don't know, I think draconians are actually a little bit cooler than dragonborn. So if I had the choice between playing a draconian and a dragonborn, I would definitely want to pick the draconian. That's one option that you could use for allowing a player who wants to play a dragonborn to still have that experience in your Dragonlance game. Another issue that you might run into is the sort of unusual ancestries that exist um, in 5e, but don't necessarily fit into Dragonlance. And when I talk about an ancestry not fitting into Dragonlance, I'm not really talking about, you know, I want to play an orc in Dragonlance. The, the obvious answer is just to be like, okay, you're an orc, but... You came from Talidas. You came from this distant land on the other side of the world that nobody from Ancelon knows about. Um, you were lost overboard at sea and you floated all the way to Ancelon. You're the only orc in Ancelon. That's perfectly fine. Or uh, I'm a halfling who is exploring a dungeon and I fell through a magic portal and it took me to Ancelon. That's why I'm the only halfling in Ancelon. Those are perfectly valid ways to do it. Perfectly fine. Easy. But what I'm talking about is what if you want to have a society of these people in Dragonlance? If you want a, uh, a half orc society or a tiefling society or uh, a half or a, um, yeah, halfling civilization on Ancelon, what are some ways that you can do it? That's what I mean by fitting into Dragonlance, that an entire group of people can fit into the world. So one idea, a few ideas I had for some specific groups is tieflings. Um, tieflings can be abyssal in nature, I would suggest. I don't feel like there's, and I'm sure, I'm sure I'm wrong, but I don't feel like there's a, a great presence of like devils from the nine hell, the nine hells in Dragonlance. But there are demons and there are incursions from the abyss. So you can have your tiefling, instead of being infernal, be abyssal. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's in the rules. It just says the tiefling has to be from a fiend. It doesn't say it has to be from a devil. If you want a tiefling, sure. They are descended from a demon or their ancestor was demon touched in some way. Here's another one. Here's a tricky one. Warforged. What if you have a player come to your table and wants to play a, play Warforged in Dragonlance? You could say, hey, this isn't Eberron. This isn't some high magic, magic punk type setting. This is, you know, early Middle Ages setting. A few options you might consider. One is to have your Warforged built by gnomes. You know, if you ever need something technological in your Dragonlance setting, just say that it was made by gnomes. There you go. Um, you might remember there's a story in the Dragonlance novels where Tasselhoff keeps talking about how he met a wizard that had these automatons. Maybe your Warforged is a wizard's automaton that somehow gained its own independence. Another idea is something actually inspired from Shadow of the Dragon Queen. So in Shadow of the Dragon Queen, for some reason, I have no idea why they decided to do this, but for some reason... Istar is described in Shadow of the Dragon Queen as being like very technologically advanced. So maybe your Warforged is built from Istarian technology that's been lost, or maybe they were, you know, buried under rubble when the cataclysm happened and they only get discovered as the War of the Lance is beginning. That's how you could fit a Warforged in Dragonlance, I think. You could even look for a place to have these different ancestries exist. So look at sort of the map of Ancelon and think, where might this group fit in? 
So I think of Abyssinia as being this very sort of like pastoral area of Dragonlance. I think it makes a lot of sense for there to be a halfling civilization in Abyssinia. If you look at orcs, I think that if we are going to imagine Naraka as kind of like the Mordor of Dragonlance, then maybe the orcs are native to Naraka. You could really just look at a map and ask yourself, where would this civilization make sense in Ancelon? So like if you're doing like the animal peoples, like the Leonin or the Aarakocra or Tabaxi, where do you fit them into your world? Um, you could, the Aarakocra are like eagle people. So they probably live somewhere high up in the mountains, like the Corollis Mountains. Um, Tabaxi are cats. So they probably live in more of a desert environment, like the Plains of Dust. Leonin, I couldn't think of exactly where they would be from. Um, maybe from like the plains in the northeastern part of the continent. I did think it would be kind of fun to have the Leonin come from the eastern islands almost as like a rival to the minotaurs i just think that'd be really cool having lion-headed seafarers fighting with bull-headed seafarers or they're from taladas maybe once the world started to rebuild after the war of the lance communication was established with taladas and people have been immigrating to ancelon since you know there's been a big war they need more people to come and help rebuild so you reach out to this other this other land and say hey we'll give you a uh you know, a moving bonus if you come to if you come to Ancelon and help us rebuild. And in terms of um, origins, we do have a great ace up our sleeve, Deus Ex Machina, in the form of the Grey Gem. Any ancestry not make sense in your Dragonlance campaign? Just say it was the Grey Gem. Grey Gem made him poof, easy piece of cake. So that's how you can incorporate some of these uh, more distinctive and different ancestries into your Dragonlance game. There's too many examples for me to go over every single one, but hopefully. Some of these ideas that I mentioned will help to inspire your thinking. So what's next on the list? Next, I want to talk about what I'll call problematic ancestries. The word problematic gets thrown around a lot these days, but problematic ancestries, specifically Kender, Gully Dwarves, and Gnomes. So we've got Kender, who are all thieves. We've got Gully Dwarves, who are all stupid. And we've got Gnomes, who are all fast talkers who build machines that blow up. There's two problems with these. One is what's referred to as bioessentialism. The idea that a certain group of people, they are all exactly the same. All Kender are thieves. All Gully Dwarves are stupid. All gnomes are crackpot inventors. This is a very dangerous concept because even though Kender, Gully Dwarves, and gnomes aren't real, these same thought, thought processes get applied to people in the real world. You know, Everybody from this group is a criminal or everybody from that group is stupid. And this has really damaging real world implications. So it's best, I think, my opinion, just to get rid of this from your, your role playing games. If you don't, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you're a racist. It just means maybe your game would be better if you didn't treat every member of a group as the same as every other member of a group. Another problem with it, even if that argument is um, not convincing to you, or it's just something you're not interested in that, they're just tired cliches at this point. We've had Dragonlance novels, Dragonlance adventures for 40 years. God bless. It must have fallen into my pouch. Uh, how many? Two, not more than two. Oh, a gnome that talks super fast. Boring cliched, tired, not funny anymore. Try to find a way to just excise that from your characters. It's 
yeah, it was it was funny and cute in 1984. It's annoying. It's stupid now. Just try to treat every kender, every gully dwarf, every gnome as distinctive from one another. Not all of the kenders steal. Not all of the gully dwarves are stupid. Some gnomes are good inventors. I've had people want to play gnomes in my games. They want to play gnomish adventures. And guess what? They don't want their gnomish adventure to, adventurer to always be cursed to fail at everything. That's not fun for a player. It's not fun for a player. Well, it's not fun for the party mates of a player whose kender is always stealing their stuff. Strip out these elements from your kender, your gully dwarves, and your gnomes. You could say, and even if you want to be a bit softer about it, you could say, you know, some kender steal, but kender know not to steal from their friends. Or kender know not to put their friends at risk. Or maybe they just don't steal things at all. You know, Tasselhoff stealing his friend's belongings it works well in the stories because the friends are just like, oh, Tass, give it back. And then you move on. But in a game, that's the kind of thing that's just that's annoying to other players. And some people, unless they are pretty mature role players, they're not going to be able to handle it. I think when it comes to gully dwarves, however, just get rid of gully dwarves altogether. I'm very biased in this. I just I think that gully dwarves are just bad in general, just bad writing, bad world building replace gully dwarves you know if if there's any ever a place in your adventure where you need a gully dwarf put in some friendly goblins perfect one one to one switch have them just be ordinary goblins and everything is going to be fine it's not going to change your story at all and you remove this harmful and repetitive tired stereotype and gnomes gnomes are the easiest of all just make your gnomes competent your gnomes are good inventors Your gnomes make good inventions. Maybe their inventions aren't always the most practical, or maybe the gnomes don't really have an interest in mass producing their inventions after they've created them. But, you know, make your gnomish inventor good at inventing. That's so easy. But the easiest thing of all, if you have a player who is brand new to Dragonlance, they don't know anything about Kender, Gully Dwarves, or Tinker Gnomes, just don't tell them. If you don't tell your player that Kender steal, your player is not going to make a Kender that steals everything. If you if your player wants to create a gnome artificer and you don't tell them that gnome artificers are cursed by reorks to always fail in their inventions, then they're not going to roleplay them as failing in their inventions. They're going to roleplay them as being good inventors. So if you've got a new player to Dragonlance, just don't saddle them with that old baggage. Don't even bother. Just let them play the Kender or the gnome the way that they want to. The last major topic that I want to tackle is the Wizards of High Sorcery. First of all, what's in a name? Wizards of High Sorcery. Do we call them Wizards of High Sorcery, like in the classic setting? Do we call them Mages of High Sorcery, like is suggested in Shadow of the Dragon Queen? Personally, this is really my taste. I say Mages of High Sorcery. I think that if you are introducing a 5e player to Dragonlance, it's going to confuse them, calling them, calling the organization the Wizards of High Sorcery. Like, well, why am I joining this organization? I'm not a wizard. What if I'm, and why am I a wizard and a sorcerer? What if I'm not a wizard or a sorcerer? Why do I still have to join this organization? I just think Mages of High Sorcery makes more sense in the 5e days. I would go with that. Really, it's your choice. Another issue that pops up with the Mages of High Sorcery is do you use the faction rules as presented in the Dungeon Master's Guide? We have our own version of that in Tasselhoff's Patches of Everything. Do you use the faction system or do you use the backgrounds that give you feats and feat trees system that exists in Shadow of the Dragon Queen. I can go either way. I think that faction rules do a much better job of 
explaining how a person fits within the organization rather than just at some arbitrary point in general, suddenly you're an adept of high sorcery or suddenly you're a knight of Salamnia when you weren't five minutes ago because you happen to level up in that five minutes. The problem with factions, of course, is that it's a lot of work for the dungeon master. They've got all this stuff that they have to keep track of, and not only do they have to keep track of it, they have to make it feel meaningful to the player. Your mileage may vary, follow your heart, but you're always going to run into the problem of does it make sense for sorcerers and warlocks? Does it make sense for a sorcerer to have the Mage of High Sorcery background? background? Does it make sense for a warlock? What if your warlock just got their powers like a week before the adventure started? Does it make sense for them to have the mages of high sorcery background? And if they don't have that background, can they still get the adept of high sorcery feat if they join If they join the mages of high sorcery? It's a big mess. I don't really have a solid answer for this. It's really up to you. Do you want a system that makes more sense but requires more work? Or do you want a simpler system that makes less sense? This is a similar problem with the Knights of Salamnia or any of the knightly organizations. We have rules for them too. We have faction rules for the knights in Tasselhoff's Pouches of Everything. It's the same problem, just for knights. So what can we do to make the Mages of High Sorcery work better in a 5e campaign? Or make make the idea of being a Mage of High Sorcery more palatable for a 5e player? Or to make it less important for a player that's just not interested in that? I have a few ideas. First, one is to say that the mages only have jurisdiction over magic users who get their powers from Kryn's moons. So that would be wizards and lunar sorcerers. Makes sense. The three gods of magic, the three moons, they created their, or they taught their disciples. Their disciples went and formed the wizards of high sorcery, mages of high sorcery. That's sort of their whole area. If you're getting your powers from a demon or you're getting your powers because you were born on the day of a storm, I mean, what do the mages of high sorcery really have to do with that? Another idea is to loosen the restrictions on being on the magic users in your world. So perhaps a sorcerer, warlock, even a wizard doesn't have to be a member of the mages of high sorcery, but they at least need to like register or um, have some very basic training, basic safety training or something by the mages of high sorcery or else be labeled renegades and that they're still accountable to the mages law. So if you are a warlock who's not a member of the mages of high sorcery, but you still abuse your magic, that's when the mages of high sorcery swoop in and grab you and put you on trial or strip you of your powers, whatever. Also, I would say that these casters who are members of the, who are not members of the mages of high sorcery do not have to take the test. That's something I'll touch on a little bit later. Another option is to say casters, whether they're wizards, bards, sorcerers, warlocks, they don't have to be affiliated with the mages in any way. But if they're not, then they're not going to gain the benefits of being a member. So they're not going to be able to, you know, rely on other members to help them. They're not going to have faction contacts that they might need. You could even make it difficult for them to buy magic items. You know, maybe legitimate magic item vendors won't sell to anybody who's not a member of the Mages of High Sorcery. So the only way that you're going to be able to get your magic items is to either find them or get them from some shady black market dealer who's probably going to raise the price. That's one idea. Another option is to say that the Mages of High Sorcery do maintain their strict rules, say from the classic era, but they don't have the power or the resources to really enforce these rules. This especially works well in the Age of Despair, the uh, the War of the Lance period or the Age of Mortals period. We'll say, or even the War of Souls period. The idea that 
yeah, it's illegal for you to practice magic if you're not a member of the Mages of High Sorcery, and you'll be labeled a renegade. But it's not as if the mages have the resources or the manpower to be sending out strike teams far and wide to track down renegades. Say it's, yeah, it's a law on the books, but, you know, if nobody can enforce the law, it might as well not exist. Lastly, I want to talk about problems with the test itself. So it has a number of problems. First, the structure of the test was really designed for AD&D wizards, and it doesn't really work for modern spellcasters. It doesn't really fit with modern spellcasting rules, the idea of using spell slots. Also, it's not really clear when the test is supposed to happen. Like, what level are you supposed to take it? I usually rule that if you are a caster, you have to take the test before you gain access to third level magic, or at least before you start using third level magic. That's just sort of the arbitrary rule that I came up with, because I figure, hey, when you get to third level magic, then you can cast Fireball. And that's when the wizards are really taking an interest in you, or the conclave is really taking an interest in you. It's also not clear in 5e whether the test is supposed to be lethal or not. Obviously, we know that in classic Dragonlance, if you fail, you die. But 5e are a bit wishy-washy on this subject, which begs the question, if the penalty for failing the test isn't dying, then what is the penalty? You got to come up with something else. My biggest problem with the test is that it interrupts a campaign. For example, I was running Shadow of the Dragon Queen, and my players are all in Calaman when they hit that threshold where they need to take the test. We had to stop the story in its tracks, move them all to Weyrith so that the magic users could take the test, then move them all the way back to Calaman, and then resume the story again. My players had fun with it. We used the Test of High Sorcery book that's available on DM's Guild. I'm sorry, I don't remember the author's name off the top of my head. That's what I used. It worked pretty well. But you're going to hit that same problem of we're stopping the narrative in its tracks to do this other thing. And then we go back to it. It's going to, especially if your story is your, your campaign has a lot of momentum going, it's going to kill that momentum. So that's something to think about carefully. Shadow of the Dragon Queen has a, a recommendation for when you get to the city of lost names, you're supposed to meet this wizard Demolin who teaches you or who has you do the test. Just throw that out. It's, it's not good. It's bad. Uh, better to not include the test at all than to include a bad test. I would just ignore that suggestion altogether. So here's a few other ideas for what you might do with the test. Uh, one idea is that as an alternative to dying, if you fail the test, your character either loses all their magic and has to respec into a different class, or they are not able to level any further in that class. They're going to have to take their additional levels in a different class. That's just an idea. If you don't want your characters, if you don't want your player characters dying because they fail the test, either they respec or they have to multi-class into something else. Another idea, what I did in my campaign to make it sort of make sense that the players went from Calaman to Weyrith is that they had a patron in Calaman. Um, and she's a character from the book. Her name is Mistress Wyan. She's a black robe that runs the mageware shop in Calaman. I had her as kind of like the mentor or overseer of my magic users. It was, it was her who came to them when it was time for them to take the test. She teleported them to Weyrith and sort of talked them through the process and then brought them back when the test was over. So I recommend that if your campaign has like a hub city or a hub town or something like that, you should have at least one advanced magic user there who can sort of act as the mentor or the facilitator of the test when the time comes. I also recommend, this is my last thought on the, on the idea of the test, I recommend that if you're going to do the test, let everybody participate. 
it's going to be super boring if all your players just sit by and do nothing while one character goes through their test. Let them all participate in some way and make it meaningful that the other character is participating. To round off this episode, I am going to throw out some wild ideas that I had that don't really fit in the structure of the discussion that we've had so far, but just a few very strange ideas that came to me of how you might change your Dragonlance world. Heresies, some might call them blasphemies, I dare say. But I just wanted to put these out there in the world just to get your imaginations firing. So here are a few wild ideas in no particular order. First, treat the third dragon war and the cataclysm as the same event. What? Yes. Instead of having the third dragon war happens, reign of Istar, cataclysm, age of despair, have the third dragon war happen during the reign of Istar. Perhaps the metallic dragons are subservient to the king priest and the king priest becomes corrupted by the queen of darkness. And in order to end the war, the gods have no choice but to drop the fiery mountain on Istar. And that's what triggers, that's the cataclysm. Then all the dragons either leave or are, or like I said before, there's so many killed that they're basically on the verge of extinction. That's one idea that I had. Another crazy idea that I had sort of related to this is, what if Huma wasn't a knight of Salamnia? What if you use the idea that the knights of Salamnia have been completely co-opted by Istar at this point? That's why people in the Age of Despair hate the knights, because they blame Istar for the cataclysm. Istar isn't there anymore for them to point the finger at. So they pointed at the knights and say, you guys were complicit in all the bad things that Istar did. You didn't help. You didn't stop them when you could have. You didn't help us after the cataclysm happened. That's why we don't like you. But in that situation, you do need to explain why Huma is revered when the knights are hated. And the idea that I had is what if Huma wasn't a knight? He was just sort of a, you know, a crusader or a, uh, some warrior priest or something like that. Somebody who was touched by the gods or somebody who had this special relationship with his dragon. And that's why he was given the dragon lance. And so maybe he is like the new ideal that the knights look up to in the modern era, although he himself was not a knight. Another wild idea. I was just talking about how to make the test work in your game, what to do, what not, what not to do. Here's an idea. Get rid of the test altogether. Just yank it right out of your story. Yank it right out of Dragonlance. I was talking at the very beginning about how Dragonlance was intended for pre-generated characters. It was intended that the wizard in your party was going to be Raceland, who was going to start the adventure having already taken the test. So they could do this sort of flashbacks to the test, of course, but you never have to actually do it. So I think that's somewhere where that's an example of where a cool narrative idea was not really considered to its logical extreme if you're playing as a not pre-generated character or if you're playing as like a first level character who's going to be taking the test how to fix it get rid of the test altogether whatever it's not really going to change all that much next you can treat the mages of high sorcery more like a university rather than an enforcement agency the tower of high sorcery in royrith is where wizards go to learn their spells where sorcerers go to uh, learn how to control their magic, where bards go to learn how to, maybe where bards go to learn how to do their bard stuff in general. Make the Tower of Weyrith a university, a teaching institution, rather than a sort of legislative organization that oversees magic on Ancelon. And in this, in this scenario, I would just get rid of the idea of black robes, white robes, red robes. Just you, when you're 
a zero level student, you go to the university, you have your teaching, you come out as a first level wizard in good standing with the mages of high sorcery. You can go back for graduate school if you want to. My next idea, my next far out wild idea, treat the cataclysm as if it were a natural event rather than divine punishment. So we think of it as the gods were mad at Istar, so they threw this fiery mountain at Istar and blew it up. What if there's no presumption that the gods did it? What if it was just a meteor came and just happened to hit Istar and destroy it? In this scenario, the people never abandon the gods. The gods never leave Kryn. That way you don't even have to worry about the absence of gods in your Dragonlance campaign because they never left. And I would even ask you, dear listener, does it really matter that much that the gods are gone when the War of the Lance campaign begins? Because by the end of Dragons of Despair, you've got your cleric back. By the end of, what's the second one? Dragons of Flame. By the end of that, you know, the, the religious organization is starting to grow again. And then what happens with the clerics after that? Nothing, really. I mean, is, is, is the rest of, is the rest of the campaign trying to convert the world to this new religion or trying to spread the message of the gods? No, it's trying to stop the war. You know, it's not really going to change your campaign all that much. You might have to play around a bit with the structure of the first two, but beyond that, it's not really going to have a huge difference. So the cataclysm was a natural event. A meteor just came along and hit the planet. It happens. Uh, the age of despair, rather than being caused by the abandonment of the gods, was more caused by, it's more like the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, uh, or it's more like climate change. You know, there's the, the lot, the, you know, crops don't grow for a few years because of all the crud up in the atmosphere, or the loss of infrastructure because you don't have this organizing empire anymore that's overseeing the road building and the communications and all this stuff. Um, if you want to play up the idea that Isar was like a more technologically advanced society, maybe, again, like the fall of the Roman Empire, once it's gone, all this technology, all this wisdom and knowledge that they had sort of gets lost. So that's the age of despair. It's the the aftermath of the fall of Rome, the aftermath of the fall of Istar, rather than having this religious element to it. Finally, my last idea. This might be the weirdest one of all. Let's say you're playing War of the Lance. They're, the gods have been gone. Your player wants to play a cleric. We know that there are seeker clerics in this world. We are always told the Seeker Clerics worship false gods and they don't have any power. What if, in your setting, the Seeker Clerics do have that power? I talked before about, you know, maybe they get it, maybe they're more like mystics or maybe they're touched by the gods. Here's another idea. What if the Seeker Clerics found the other gods they were seeking? What, or what if they called out to other gods who came in from other worlds to Ancelon, to Krynn? You could import deities from other settings. You know, the Seekers call out to Lathander or something, and Lathander comes over from the Forgotten Realms to help the people out. You could also have it be um, like real world gods. You know, maybe the people start worshiping, uh, maybe Zeus comes in, or maybe uh, um, Odin comes in and starts having a presence in, in Kryn. You could create your own gods. So you could create your own pantheon of new gods to go to exist in Kryn alongside the old gods or d- displace the old gods. And maybe that could add some tension to your campaign. New gods versus old gods. Um, you could even let the players create their own or choose their own. So let's say I have a player coming in. They want to play a cleric. And I'm saying, okay, what kind of cleric do you want to play? And they say, oh, Lathander. And I say, okay, great. Lathander saw that Ancelon needed help. So saw that Kryn needed help. So he, he left um, Faerun and he came over to uh, Ancelon to help the people out. Or maybe they have their own idea for a god that they want to use, their own homebrew god. Sure, great. No reason that can't work if you try. 
That's my final crazy idea. This is probably the most heretical. I mean, this is almost literally heresy. The idea that the seekers did find or did call other gods. And so the seekers are like the clerics of the new gods. That's that's my wild ideas, my crazy ramblings. If you think those ideas are terrible, feel free to throw tomatoes and rotten lettuce at me. Um, feel free to leave a comment in the Dragonlance Nexus Facebook group. Well, you can do that even if you don't disagree with me, even if you do agree with me. Leave a message in the Dragonlance Facebook group. Let me know what you think of my ideas. And more importantly, shout out your own ideas. What have you done to sort of smooth over Dragonlance or to make Dragonlance fit better into the framework of 5th edition? And that's all I've got for you. So thank you so much for listening and join us next time on the Dragonlance Canticle Podcast. Thanks, everybody.